0: Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. And as it is your word, your Holy Spirit leads us, guides us, and directs us. In fact, your Holy Spirit also enables us to do the hard work of slowing down and reading carefully and actually going back and learning how to read your Word. And so we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to be good students. Help us to be diligent. Help us to be careful. Help us to be attentive as we look to your Word. Oh God, bless us as we seek to better understand how to faithfully read your Word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week, just as a real quick uh, recap, and this should be as a recap on the handout that you had in front of you, is we looked at how to read a gospel. And as I said last week, when you come to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which we refer to as the synoptic gospels, and we refer to those as synoptic gospels because they are all similar in their sequence, in their arrangement of events. Um, We don't believe that they are completely linear. If you're familiar with that literary term, a linear reading would be like this starts with Jesus' birth, this ends with His death. We don't believe that the synoptic Gospels are completely linear in fashion. In other words, the, the Gospel writers will take different themes and points of emphasis, including Jesus' miracles and parables, and arrange them thematically. But for the most part, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic in the sense that there is the beginning and the end of, of Jesus' life. The John is unique in and of itself. Uh, it does not seem to draw upon uh, Mark, which it was probably the base text, or as some literary scholars uh, will refer to a Q, uh, meaning some sort of, of, of book that it was out there that they're drawing from. But regardless of what the basis is, John is uniquely different. But as we couple those four together... Those four Gospels, we see very quickly that they are distinct works of literature inspired by the Holy Spirit, the inerrant Word of God. They are not simply narrative history, although they contain narrative history. They are not simply biography, although they contain biography. They are ultimately about Jesus. So when we get done with the Gospel... And as I said last week, uh, the Apostle John makes this so easy for us because we get to the the end of, of, of John and he goes, you know, and this is my paraphrase, you know, there's not a library big enough. There's not a database big enough for us to be able to pull together all that Jesus did, all that Jesus said, but I've given you enough. I've given you enough, and that enough is the picture of Jesus Christ. So we don't read the Gospels and go, what's this saying to me? We read the Gospels and we say, what's this saying about Jesus? That's a big distinction uh, in our reading of it. What Jesus did, what Jesus taught, who Jesus is, and then that practical aspect of what does it mean to be Jesus' disciple based on who He is. Uh, so as someone said before, uh, back when the, the, the little uh, arm bracelet was real popular that said WWJD, um, I've forgotten who what it was it that said, is, it, you know, that's, that's translated wrong. It's, it's not what would Jesus do, but it, was, it would be what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Well, we know what Jesus did based on the Gospels. And so we go there to learn about Jesus. We also considered the subgenres last week of parables and miracles and seeing that the Gospel writers intentionally use those to amplify something. In other words, if you're reading along in a Gospel and a miracle comes along and you don't know what the significance of that miracle is, that's a great time to stop. It's a great time to rewind. It's a great time to understand, and what I've said before, broaden your reading of the context, understand what that miracle is about. And the same thing with a parable. Miracles and parables within the gospel are not there haphazardly. They're not there just as if the writer says, you know, it's, a, it's been getting a little dull with this narrative. I need to spice some things up, get a good miracle in there. Nope, it's not how it works. The miracles are there to say, "Eh, eh, eh, eh." I'm teaching you something about Jesus. Pay attention. The parables are there for Jesus to say, "Eh, eh, eh." I'm teaching you something about the kingdom of heaven. And because I am the king, and because the kingdom points exclusively to me, I'm teaching you something about me. All of that we see in the miracles and the parables, and so we should understand that, that, uh, that they're telling us about Jesus we should also understand that when uh, we're reading a parable, that a parable is not an allegory, uh, that we're not to look into a parable in such great detail that we're pulling out so, all sorts of allegorical uh, reasonings, uh, but rather the parables are a general truth. They're a statement. Read them as such. If you get down with a parable and you go, well, I, I'm not sure what I understand about all the details of that parable, but I sure understand the general truth then you got it. And you don't have to dive in anything else or try to read something into it. There's a general truth of those parables. And the same thing could be said of Jesus' miracles. Miracles are a work of power. They're a wonder. They're a sign. But ultimately, they're not there for us to go, oh, wow, that's cool. Or, wow, how can I get me some of that? They're to go, Just like Jesus' disciples did when he settled the sea, were to go, Whoa, who is this man? And of course the Gospels tell us he is the Lord Jesus Himself. And so we see all of this within the Gospels, and then and then we change gears from the Gospels, into Acts, which is a type of Gospel, and structured in a very similar way, literarily, and then we get to this thing called Romans. Now, I'll pause here for just a second, a brief detour of explanation of the, why, the way that your Bible is compiled the way that it is. So first of all, uh, I'll, I'll uh, confront some errors. I imagine you don't believe these, but nevertheless, in case you've heard them before, so, the New Testament's not compiled from the oldest Bible, um, oldest book to the newest book. Matthew's not the oldest book written in the, the New Testament, and uh, Revelation, of course, is the last one, presumably. But nevertheless, it's not compiled in old, newest or oldest to newest. It's not compiled in an arrangement for us to see it theologically. We're not to read the New Testament and go. Hmm, okay, now Romans follows Acts. Ergo, there must be something pointing from Acts into Romans. Nope, they're arranged thematically according to historical tradition and compilation practices. The books of Romans all the way until we get to the shortest book are based on, wait for it, wait for it, length of Pauline literature. Romans is Paul's longest book. Ergo, it's the first, right? And move all your way on down to Philemon, the shortest of Paul's writings. It's the last. That's it. There's nothing any more complex than that. They're just arranged from the longest to the shortest. Then we get into the other epistles that lead up to the apocalypse, also uh, referred to as Revelation. But, But all of this arrangement we could take and rearrange as we saw fit, we keep it arranged the way that it is because that's the way that the church has arranged the books from the earliest compilations or the earliest codexes. You've heard me use that word before, which is the first books. The first time that we see a compilation of the New Testament Scriptures arranged, we see it consistently as it's published again and again, consistently in this kind of an arrangement, all not always exactly the way it is, but certainly where we are for hundreds of years. We've had the arrangement that we have, and so that's the way that it is published. If you decide that you want to put Revelation before Matthew, I mean, I guess be my guest. It's not that big a deal. But that's the way the New Testament books are uh, arranged. Now, with that said... Where we get to in our New Testament following Acts is Romans, and Romans is a form of literature that I want us to look at, and that is the epistle. The epistle. And epistles, whether they are of Paul, or whether they are of John, or whether they are of Peter, and so on, they have a certain style to them that I'm sure that you have picked up on before. One-third of your New Testament is epistolary literature. So you're pretty consistently running into this. But there are a couple of keys that I want you to remember. And I'm going to look. I can't remember if this is on your handout or not. Aha, it is. Yeah, these are, these are helpful. So I'm, I'm not going to write them on the board because it would take too long, but I've actually printed them out on your handout. The first is is that when you come, so we'll just pick on an easy one. We'll pick on Romans. When you come to Romans, you need to first remember that it is a letter written by a specific person. And you say, well, of course, that's what epistle literary literature is. It's a, it's a letter. You're right. But it is helpful to remember who that person is, because who that person is is going to convey significance to whom he is writing, right? So if just anybody writes a letter to the Jew and Gentile Christians in the capital of Rome, it's not going to carry the same weight as the Apostle Paul, is it? And so, first of all, we note who has written it. Secondly, we need to understand that they are one side of a two-way conversation. And let me pause here just for a, a footnote. Um, like if you get anything out of what I'm teaching today, please get this. This is a key, a key to understanding epistolary literature. You've got to know you're only getting one side. And that means that there are going to be some things... I give you an easy example 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians both first and second Corinthians there are parts of that that we go what I need I need the other side I need to know I need the investigative report of what happened before Paul wrote this letter I now need to understand what their response back to him is I need to understand what the elders of that church are now saying and thinking and how they respond and we've got none of that Now, I want to pause there for just a second. Are we at a disadvantage for not having that? Well, if you think about literature from a worldly perspective, then yes, we're we're missing out. We're at a distinct disadvantage because we only have one side of the argument. And anybody who's ever worked as a mediator or negotiator before knows There's always two sides to the story, right? And so we are at a disadvantage if we look at it purely from a communicative standpoint. This is why we need to go all the way back however many weeks ago when I started this study. And remember, the the Bible is not just literature. It's not just a compilation of letters and books and et cetera, et cetera. It is the very Word of God. And even if it is in the form of a letter, we have the part that we are to have. That's it. We have the part that we are to have. The other part we were not to have, but we have the part that we are to have, and we must be content with that. Does that mean that we'll have questions that go unanswered? Yeah, it does. But look, we've all got our running list of questions they can't be unanswered, don't we? There are many mysteries in this life. One of them is why we don't have the back and forth of epistolary literature. But we don't, and that is by God's intention. He has given us what we are to have. But we need to remember when we're reading it that there is a two-way conversation that's going on. Thirdly, We need to know that they were typically written in response to a specific situation. We need to know that they were written to address a specific situation. So the low-hanging fruit here is 1 Corinthians, right? I mean, I say that, and I imagine you students of the Bible, everybody went, yeah, 1 Corinthians, we know something's going on. We know Paul just seems to be bouncing from topic to topic to topic. Or another low-hanging fruit is Galatians, I mean, I mean, some of the things that um, Paul says in confronting the deception of the Judaizers wouldn't be allowed to be said in teaching this class. They're so graphic and aggressive. But Paul is making a point, isn't he? When he says, well, I think that let those men essentially lose their masculinity, he's making a point. He's not trying to be crass. He's not trying to be rude. But you're going to think that if you don't understand that Paul's addressing a problem, and he's addressing a problem, and I mean he is addressing it by grabbing somebody by the throat. He's not polite. He grabs them by the throat and he says, I'm going to deal with this right now. And here's how it I'm going to deal with it. You're being lied to. You're being led astray. You're being taken away from the grace of God and on and on and on and on. Now, the reason I'm I'm making this point to illustrate it is, is that if you don't read Galatians in that context, which I will say that Martin Luther, for example, was guilty at times, but not always, at times at trying to transport things a little too far out of the Galatian context. If you read Galatians outside of its context, you're going to miss why Paul says what he does, and here's the main thing, why he says it the way he does. Why, Why is he so aggressive and so different in Galatians than, say, for example, Philippians? Why is he writing the way it is? You're not going to know it unless you know, aha, this is the Apostle Paul. He has the authority of apostolic authority. This is the Apostle Paul. He is writing specifically to the Galatians. This is the Apostle Paul writing specifically to the Galatians to address the confrontation of the gospel. That's a big deal, right? In the church. And of course, it's rippling effects as the Judaizers would spread. And carry their lies to other areas. So those are the three areas. And then fourthly, note that there will be a general theme or themes that each apost- each epistle has. This doesn't mean uh, incidentally that uh, that all of them ha- have, have one. I mean for example, one of the things that I, I love when when you uh, when a, a minister is uh, or not yet a minister, when a, uh, what would be a teaching elder elect, I mean, I actually don't know the terminology, um, when someone's studying to be a minister in the PCA, and they have to go through what's called the trials, um, one of the things that they have to be tested on is their Bible knowledge, as you would expect, and one of the things that you have to do in the written test, and sometimes in the oral test, is you have to give a one-sentence um, summary Of a book of the Bible. And on some of those, it it is remarkably easy, right? And then some of them, you're like, Psalms? Are you kidding me? I've got to give a one-sentence summary of it? And so, of course, when I was tested on that, my summaries had lots of commas, (laughs) you know. I got a few summary Singular, for you here, separated by commas. But but different books are different. And, and as we look at the epistles, we're going to see that there are certain epistles where we read it and we, for example, we read Philemon and we go, got it. One word theme, grace or forgiveness or something or mercy, something along those lines. I've got it. I could just do it in one word. And then, and then we get to Romans and we go, hmm well, I thought I knew what the theme of the book was until chapter 10. And then I thought I knew what the two themes of the book were, was until I got to chapter 12, and then I got to chapter 13. I don't know what the themes of the book of Romans are. You know, and so you can, you can get overwhelmed to, to a certain extent. My point is, is that you don't have to define that. The point is just recognize it, that there is a general message going on. For example... We clip and quote different verses out of context and sometimes it's very helpful. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever memorized what's called the Romans Road? The Romans Road. Romans Road is very helpful in sharing the gospel. We'll go from Romans 3.23 to Romans 6.23 to Romans 5.10 and so on. And those are very helpful verses. However... If your exposure to Romans, and I'll just pick on Romans 3.23 for example, if your exposure to Romans 3.23 is just simply clip and quote for sharing the gospel, then it's really easy to lose Paul's argument. Paul starts in chapter 1 and he's making an argument about the rejection of God by the world and the consequences of that. And then he goes to chapter 2, and you realize, oh wow, he's not just talking about the world, he's now talking Jews. And so as a Gentile, you go, whew, I'm off the hook for a little bit, and then he takes a curve, right? And by the time he gets to Romans 3, we're all guilty, right? And so you get to that point, and you go, ah, I, I, I get it. I get it. By the time I get to the end of Romans 3, before he takes me to Abraham in Romans chapter 4, I get it. I see what he's doing there in using this theme of we're all guilty, we're all in need of a Savior, we all need the grace of God, etc., etc. So look for those themes as you work your way through it. So, When you move from the epistles then, at the conclusion of the New Testament, then you come to Revelation. Now, a couple of things I want to say up front before I dive into this. Um, So first of all, um, if you have questions about the book of Revelation, I will not be answering them today. Uh, So sorry to disappoint. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I offend everyone, right? And if I start diving into uh, Revelation today, I promise I will offend everyone. And so we're not going to do that today. What I am going to do is I'm going to try to help you read the book of Revelation. A couple of introductory points. First of all, Revelation is arguably the most difficult book to read in the New Testament. Now, that's not my words. There are a number of scholars that say that. But part of that is because we have quite a bit of baggage that we carry with us, especially in this part of the country. So most of us in this part of the country grew up with a dispensational background, and dispensationalism is really hard to unlearn. I mean, it is you. You got to be you. You got to be a tough customer to unlearn dispensationalism. It is difficult. So partly we bring baggage with it. Partly we bring uh, the background of Schofield and his Bible and charts and graphs and all these sorts of things uh, that were made up out of the Book of Revelation. And a lot of that, are, understandably so, is very difficult. To, to unlearn um, this is not something that the earlier Christians were struggling with um, it is a, it is a somewhat of a modern phenomenon um, most of our difficulties with revelation is essentially the baggage that we have coupled with it uh, but nevertheless if you can approach revelation this is how I encourage you to do it if you can approach revelation without any kind of preconceived notion so well now John, I'm all-meal. Good for you. I'm post-meal. Good for you. I'm pre-meal. Sorry to hear it, but good for you. All of these things you take with you, just sort of park those over there because you're not even going to get to it till the 20th chapter. My goodness gracious. There's 22 chapters. you got 19 chapters to go. Park it over here. Well, I'm a I'm a futurist. Well, I'm a pre-tourist. Well, great. Glad to hear it. Park it. Park it over to the side. Park your preconceived notions and approach the book of the apocalypse, as in Greek it's it's called, uh, I think, Ah, Yohane Apocalypsus, if I remember correctly. Uh, and so, Revelation's a fairly new uh, spin on that. But it, when you approach the apocalypse of John, approach it free. Just liberate yourself. Just go, whew. I'm going to read this, I'm going to read it free from what I have studied before. Uh, I believe... It was, uh, yeah, Sinclair Ferguson said, an apocalypse is not first and foremost a history written in advance so that every last detail of the book stands for, for and even that will take place in the future. But rather, Sinclair goes on to say is that you have to read it in its context. Revelation then is best understood as a book of dramatic... Symbolic scenes. Or is R.C. and I won't, I'll butcher this quote, but R.C. Sproul said that we've often heard that you uh, read the book of Revelation as uh, read it as literal and then, if necessary, understand it as symbolic. And R.C. Sell said, nope, it's the opposite. Read the book of Revelation as symbolic, and if necessary, and last resort, read it as literature, as, li- as literal. That's a very helpful understanding. You can approach it more freely, you can better understand it. And I, I might add too, and I know I'm a literary nerd, but I find Revelation so much more enjoyable when I will approach it with that approach as we understand it to be originally written as symbolic. John is writing to the church. If you want to say that he's writing in code, be careful with that, right? But to a certain extent, he's using symbols to signify things, to convey a message. Also, we need to remember that Revelation was written to 1st century readers. And as far as we know, from the early church fathers, they got it. Like, they they didn't need somebody from the 21st century to go back and explain it to them in the 1st century. As far as we understand, John wrote the book of Revelation. As far as we understand, the 1st century Christians read it and got it. Key piece of information, isn't it? because oftentimes we'll think about it in our own context, right? And so we want to be careful of reading into it and inferring certain things. Read it as a drama. Read it as symbolic. And read it as scenes. Uh, I want to read to you, and I've I've said before that there are a couple of good uh, study Bibles. Uh, I recommend... Reading your Bible, not through a study Bible. Um, I recommend when you read your daily Bible reading, read it in a a Bible that doesn't have notes uh, because I think notes can be very distracting. Um, But when you do come across things that you want to dive into more deeply, um, there are a couple of good... Uh, study Bibles. Uh, Probably, um, I like the ESV study Bible, but I think the one that I give as a gift and the one that I think is the safest from a reform standpoint is the Reformation study Bible. Um, And I want to read to you an excerpt from their introduction, and I think this is very helpful. I'm literally just going to read to you, but it's what I'm describing here. Quote, The symbols of Revelation serve the same purpose as the words of the prophets and parables of Jesus. In fact, the sevenfold admonition to the churches, he who has ear an ear, let him hear, is based on Isaiah six, nine and ten, and its use in Matthew thirteen, nine through sixteen. The repeated use of this phrase in the seven letters along with its repetition in 13.9 shows that the symbolism of the visions functions in the same way as Jesus' parables. Now I want to stop there for just a second. If the Reformation Study Bible and its editor uh, and writers is correct, um, remember what I said about parables. When you approach a, a parable, you're not reading into all of the various details of the parable, right? What's the significance in the sl- pig slop, in the prodigal son? No, you're, you're, not, you're, you're looking at the big picture, right? Well, that, that's what the editors of the Reformation Study Bible are saying here. When you read Revelation, don't get caught in the weeds. Look for the big pictures, They go on to say, "...by their powerful and often shocking imagery, the visions open the eyes of true believers while leaving hardened unbelievers in deep darkness. Though it is also true that some unbelievers are shocked into faith for the first time through hearing the parabolic visions read. In short, the message of Revelation does not merely concern the unfolding of future events." Instead, it uses present events, present meaning that in the first century, present events understood in a symbolic manner to speak both a warning and an encouragement to believers to persevere in their commitment to Christ and divorce themselves from any allegiance to the world system which expresses the rule of the kingdom of darkness. I I could not have said it better. Uh, that's a great synopsis from the introductory material in the Reformation Study Bible, and I think does a good job. I want to conclude uh, with this: that uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, "Revelation is meant to be an encouragement to faint heart, to a faint-hearted church, not a modern version of escapism, nor a ho- no. That's not that was me." <laughs> Is my quote. Um, it, not a modern version of escapism nor a horror movie. Um, and and what, I, what I mean by that is, is that oftentimes uh, when we read Revelation, perhaps we read it trepidatiously, we read it uh, with concern and, and what, what's going to happen. And that's not, if you be, read and go back to the very first chapter, that, that's not how John began the book. Um, we're to read the book of Revelation with happy expectation and thankfulness for what God has done in Christ. Christ wins. Christ has won. Christ is victorious. Christ is always victorious. And so we want to avoid approaching it as escapism. We want to avoid it as horror literature. We want to look at it as a message of victory because the Apostle John was writing to the discouraged, to the faint-hearted. He was writing as a means of encouragement, not discouragement, right? Right? And so we, that's the way that we want to approach the book. That's the way that we want to read it. I have about two to three minutes for any questions, not regarding Revelation, that you may have. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So we want to be careful not to read that too literally. Um, Keep in mind that all of the literature in the New Testament was read aloud. And so John is is sending this to the church. At this point it was, it was if we want to take it as understanding the, the seven churches as literal, he's sending this out to seven churches. And as was the custom, and we see from the early church fathers that when a letter would come in, uh, that would at some point, typically at the beginning, would be read to the, the congregation. So this it's just practical instruction. Yeah. And undoubtedly the word of God does indeed bless. And so we are to read it aloud. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said that's one of the reasons why we have uh, scripture reading in our service. We are blessed through the reading of God's word aloud. Yeah, not not just Revelation. All of all of the rest of God's word. Yeah. John, you may have mentioned this time, is there any Not really. No, I mean that when when they are arranged for printing or for publication for compilation, we see that the three synoptic gospels are coupled. Um, some have argued, and I, and I think it's a it's a medieval error um, that you're you're seeing these different themes: the lion, the lamb, and things like this. Um, but but those are that's just medieval allegory. Um, we don't see if if. If I were ordering it, I I would probably do uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke because it seems to be, literary scholars say, it seems to be that's the the order, uh, at least in terms of taking quotations. It seems that Matthew and Luke quote from Mark, and it seems that Luke may have quoted from Matthew, certainly from Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions about better reading the Bible? Yeah, Philip? Hmm. Yeah, well, so uh, I'm not going to repeat that question because if I do, I'll probably get stones thrown at me uh, when I answer this on the, the video, you know, YouTube, the famous place of, of people firing arrows with keypads, right? Um, so we have, many evangelists have typically used that to refer to the complaint canon. And I'm, I'm not opposed to that interpretation, um, I understand that that can be helpful, and I do think that in the sense that Revelation is the last book of our closed canon, you could read it as that. Um, as a student of literature, I struggle uh, immensely with that, and I interpret it as he's referring specifically to the apocalyptic Revelation, um, not to the whole book. But hear me clearly. It, 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 there, if you hold that it's to the closed canon, go for it, and I'm going to run down the beach with you and wave the sword, and I think it's a, it's good and worthy. i just struggle with it. Yeah, but good question. Yeah, any other questions? All right, let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is written, that we can go to it, And we thank you that in your providence, you have provided translations for us. You have allowed us to to read this in our own vulgar tongue. And you have allowed us to have brilliant translations today in the age in which we live. And we thank you so much for this. But We pray that we would not take it for granted. It would not be merely a book on our shelf or a book that we refer to on Sundays, but that we would be readers first then students of Your Word, that we would be faithful to be in it, that we would be faithful to meditate upon it, to drink it deeply, and may You bless us through, of course, the public reading of Your Word, the private reading of Your Word, the preaching of Your Word, the memorizing and meditating upon Your Word, and all of this. May we be a Scripture-saturated people. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.